This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. start honestly with the with the introduction to your book because I found myself first coming to the introduction thinking oh it's the introduction (laughs) I've got to get to the book and then really just having to slow down and take in the processing of this moment in time as you've distilled it in this introduction like as it relates to the feminine. One of the first main quotes that you pull out of it is the loss of feminine qualities is an urgent psychological and ecological issue in modern society, is a painful loss in our emotional lives and a disastrous loss for the safety of life on earth. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> now, can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, historically, the fate of nature has been tied to the fate of women and vice versa. So if we look back through history when women and the feminine have been honored, uh, then also the earth has been honored. For example, in the Native American tradition and the Native American tribes, they, they honored women and the feminine, and they also honored the earth and did everything in a reciprocal relationship. For example, I tell a story in my book about Bertha Grove, who's a Native American woman who I actually met before I came out to Colorado by chance at a gathering in Texas, and she was really my neighbor, to the land that we would eventually settle on and develop Taramandala. And when I went out with her uh, walking, she taught me a lot of different things. She was an herbalist, an herbal doctor, and she talked about plant spirits and plant medicine. And so one of the things she said, for example, was when you pick an herb, don't pick the strongest one. Pick a, a, a strong one, but not the strongest one, because if you leave the strongest one, then the future will be better, because the new plants will be breeding from that superior plant. 
And the other thing she taught me was when I pick something to leave a hair, like pull out a little hair and and offer it. And she said that's so that you know what it feels like to the earth when something's pulled out of her and also as an offering back to the earth. And so that's a, an example of a culture of reciprocality and natural ecology and also honoring the feminine, the earth as the mother. And women often were the decision makers. Not always, but uh, that as opposed to our current situation where we have uh, a good example in our president of how the the earth and women are treated in a similar way. So he's removing all kinds of ecological policies that were put into place, as we we all know, and he also uses and abuses women. And so this has been the historical uh, situation. And so my premise is that when women come forward in their true potency as women, not as women trying to be like men, but but women who have actualized the, the difference in the feminine, how we're different, uh, and actualize that in themselves, then there will be a corresponding effect in our ecological situation because those women leaders will be respecting the earth. And so there's a there's a tie-in in terms of what's happening with women and what's happening with the earth. That's one of my premises in, in the introduction. And then the other one is the need for for women to own the fierce feminine. Not fierce in like angry, nasty, but fierce in the sense of a wild animal, a, a, let's say a bear or any wild animal uh, who becomes very fierce in protection of her young. And so that, that fierce feminine aspect of, of us has been denied, has been forbidden. And so what I saw coming out of the women's marches and and so on was the fierce feminine. But there was also a lot of joy and humor mm-hmm. in it. And so so that's all, you know, in a, in a way that's political. But my my book and my point is spiritual in the sense that we need a practice, we need an inner path to find that potency, to find that wholeness, and to be able to hold the fierce feminine in its, its wisdom aspect. And that's the Dakini mandala. Dakinis are the embodiments of feminine wisdom in t- the Tibetan tradition. They're wild, uh, and they're embodied, and they're dancing, and they're wise. They're they're equal to Buddhas, the the wisdom dakinis. So, my book is about the the mandala and the five families of dakinis, and how to place your mind into that mandala, and enter into the blessings of that presence, 
and wholeness and then bring that to the world, to your world, to, to, to have the change, see the change that we need to see. But I had the, the flashes or the vision. What if every woman who, of the 7 million women who marched in the Women's March were doing the Daikini practice and, and practices of integration with the elements? What if they were all doing that? Wouldn't they have an amazing resource to draw on to, to be activists in whatever that way they are in their lives or to live the empowered feminine in their lives. The image of all the women in the Women's March <laughs> connecting into <laughs> this kind of practice, to me that just is so, so much power, right? Yeah. That would just be one wave. We would just surf that wave right into the new paradigm <laughs> and so tell us just a little bit about how how and when the writing of this book started to need to be done well my my track with with this book began with the mandala there's been two main things that i focused on as a teacher one is feeding your demons and the chud lineage that that comes through that from that and the other is the mandala. And so a few years ago, I thought, I'll just write a little book about my mandala teaching and uh, um, just get that done. And then I want to write another book. And, you know, with books, it's never like that. So I started working on the mandala because when I was 15 years old, I was in Harvard Square wandering around. Uh, staying with my grandparents who lived in Cambridge. And uh, I found a book called Man and His Symbols mm. by Carl Jung. And it had a mandala on the cover. And I I was 15, you know, from New Hampshire, you know, and I looked at this Tibetan mandala on the cover of this book. And I, I, mm. I it kind of opened up and I went into it. And... I bought the book, and then there were more Tibetan mandalas inside, and I was just fascinated the way this painting, which a mandala is basically circular, and it has four gates coming in from the four sides and then a center. That's a very simple way to put it, four quadrants with a center in a circle. So, so I went to Dharamsala and wanted to learn how to paint mandalas, and was told I... It would take me about a year just to learn the measurements for one mandala. <laughs> and I was 19 years old, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. And uh, and then I tracked the mandala into my practice and became a nun. And and, and then I studied with Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche when I came back from being a nun in Asia, and he was teaching a lot about the five families, hmm. five Buddha families and the mandala, and, and it was really fascinating to me. So in each, in each segment of the mandala, you have a color, an element, an obstructed emotional pattern, like let's say anger, and a wisdom, which for anger it would be mirror-like wisdom. 
So there's five of those and they call the five families and it ties to everything like how houses are decorated, um, what you wear, body types and so on. It's very, it's one of those inclusive systems that once you learn it, you start seeing everything in terms of these families. And, and it also gives you hints on how you can transform your own emotional patterns. So I learned that from him. And then later when I started to teach the mandala and the Dakini mandala, which was around 1987, I, um, included those teachings and we started working with the Dakinis who are wild and wise and they're feminine. And so I put those two things together and taught the Dakini mandala, which is what's in this book. That story that you tell about your needing to get to Tibet with the kids and the thing and get the work and that, that um, energy of, of needing to change needing to get something done how tricky it is to not step into that uh, out of habit or out of um fear really you know grasping at an old kind of power to try and put forth the true power or the power of the, of the moment and so these practices that that are in in your book you know really do offer that space. So that story uh, in the book I told in relationship to the karma family, karma's heir and its action and it's all accomplishing action and the wisdom aspect and then in the feminine um, or the in the um, obstructed part pattern, it's jealousy and uh, and the, being in the force rather than the flow. So I told that story and I'll just briefly tell it just for your listeners if they don't didn't get it I was going to Nepal I had to leave my kids in a not so great situation to go and collect information in order to finish my first book and so I was stressed and I really wanted to get this done as quickly as possible and basically everything went wrong from the from forgetting my passport <laughs> In the beginning, missing my flight, and and then um, and then contrasting that with really being relaxed and allowing things to happen, where you keep moving, but you're not in this like it's got to happen, it's got to happen now feeling. Um, and so that the transformation of that is is from the sort of workaholic tendency to the wisdom of all accomplishment. And so I think now uh, the practices that I offer in Women of Wisdom slow you down and center you in that powerful presence of the Dakini and so it, it's like a, a decelerator, <laughs> kind of like a brake, you know, brake as in a car brake. Uh, you stop and then you center in wholeness and then you go into your day and your activities and so on. And so 
the the whole mandala, which is transformation, not only this particular pattern, but four other ones, would allow you to resource your ability to accomplish things like the return of the feminine, which I know is what you're working toward. Uh, but but within the being staying within wholeness and within a meditative presence and awareness that's allowing for the flow and not the force. And just speak a little bit about how that practice does that for you. I know you outline it here yeah. in the book, but yeah. Um, well, in the practice basically after some preliminaries, you sound um, seed syllables of the five dakinis, and you sound them one at a time. And as you sound the first one, you become the white dakini who's in the center of the mandala. As you sound the second one, you sound the eastern direction, seed syllable. And then the south, and then the west, and then the north. And so in that process of creating the mandala, you take your mind, which normally goes here and there and is really just all over the place randomly, and you place it into a structure, which is, if you think of it almost like an archaeological, not archaeological, an architectural structure. Um, so... It's different than simply being with the breath and, and basic sitting meditation. You're, you, in your mind, you're holding yourself in the center and these dakinis in the four quadrants. And so by doing that, and then in each one of them is the transformation of an emotion into a wisdom. By the end, you're sitting in the space of the, these five wisdoms and you're embodying yourself, your own body, as a dakini. So you're experiencing being naked and wearing bone ornaments and dancing and holding a hooked knife in your raised right hand and the skull cup at your heart. And you're blazing with bliss, blazing with bliss and wisdom. And so... You, you're placing your mind there, right? And you're holding your mind there. And so you're taking it out of its fragmented, discursive pattern. And to the best of your ability, you're, you're keeping it there. And then there are certain things that you do within that space once you're there. And so that's transformative. We transform our minds. And we're knowing more and more as as research goes on, the immense health benefits of meditation. But we haven't yet tested the benefits of this kind of meditation. We've tested mindfulness meditation, and the results are very clear. But what about something where you're holding your mind in a mandala? That would be interesting to do research on what are the effects of that. Fascinating, so, yes. So what happens then is that your whole energy system using body, speech, and mind is transformed into this particular mandala. And that process is 
alchemical and transformative. And it allows for shift to take place within that person because they're, it's called the path of transformation. So it's a, it's a transformative path. And so that's a little bit of an idea of how it works. I mean, it was very, very, I was, uh, uh, through osmosis or vicariously on, uh, that transformative path as you were telling your experience of it. Uh-huh. And it yeah. Went, and we didn't sound the same syllables because or even do the, are... the nine breaths. I mean, honestly, the uh-huh. nine breaths, nine breaths mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. You know, and, and that is, there's so much reverence in that. Yeah. Is there something that you'd like to offer people that come to this without prior experience mm-hmm. of doing any mandala or dakini practice or integration practice and that get hooked and want to want to get involved? <laughs> I'm going to hook you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, for somebody just coming into this, for for whom it's all rather foreign, uh, maybe they've never even known about Buddhism, never mind Vajrayana Buddhism and Dakinis and so on, is to really remember that this is really just about your basic nature. It's not cultural. You know, when we talk about the transformation of anger into mirror-like wisdom, that's universal. It would be the same for someone in Europe or in Africa or in Asia or Australia or wherever, we all have anger, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe different cultures express it differently and and so on, but we all, as human beings, we have these obstructed patterns. And in, in the mandala, there's the first one is the Buddha family, and that's connected to depression and spaciness, uh, dissociation and an extreme, and the, the classic name is ignorance. So it's it's spaciness that, in its wisdom aspect, becomes spaciousness. Hmm. And so we can all relate to that, right? I mean, I can. I've been depressed. I've I've been spacing, spacey, um, and. Uh, and and foggy, it, it it has a kind of bewilderment quality, and so what's cool about this is that because it's an ancient tradition, for example, the seed syllables are sounds that are connected to the transformation of these patterns into wisdom, and the visualizations, the colors, the each everything in the visualization has a meaning, and so. We can all find ourselves here. You might read about the Buddha filming and think, oh my God, I'm so Buddha. <laughs> or, or, you know, the next one's Vajra, and that's anger, as I said, and it transforms into mirror-like wisdom. And we can have cold anger and we can have hot anger, right? Mm. Like, my style of anger is more like uh, cutting, cutting off, you know? And some people more like get mad. Um, so, but we can find ourselves, I'm saying, that's my point, is we can find ourselves in each of the families, and 
what happened with my editor and also my publisher who read the book was they said it completely transformed their way of seeing the editor rearranged her whole room according to the <laughs> uh, according to the Buddha family and and the publisher found found herself you know so you'll find yourself in each or some of the families, and you'll find pieces of yourself in each of them, and you'll probably find a predominance mm. in one or another. And so then, once you get that, then you have keys of how to transform those those qualities, those obstructed qualities, into wisdom. And, and placing that transformation within the wholeness, the template of the mandala, which is really universal. It's it's present in every culture in the world and in it in one form or another. And so it's it yes, this is Tibetan tradition, this is Vajrayana Buddhism, but this is humanity. This is us as human beings and we all have these obstructive patterns and we all have the potential of wisdom. And so you can and transform through this. Right. You can transform in an individual moment and over time or over wider swaths of, of different areas of your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Different perceptions like you're the editor rearranging the whole host <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. reflect. Yeah. And the, I talk about interior um, interiors and you know how you can recognize which family it is in the interior of a house, um, in body types, in clothing, mm. in food, countries. You know, certain countries are dominated by certain families. Mm. It's very interesting. And, you know, you might say, well, yeah, but so what? You know, there's so many different systems, be it astrology or um, the Kabbalah or whatever, uh, where we can sort of get a structure for what we're seeing, perceiving, through some sort of system. But because this comes from a genuine, authentic lineage, which is thousands of years old, we have the benefit of the, I guess you could say something like divine inspiration or insight, maybe divine insight, uh, into, for example, sound and color and how those work that we can benefit from, whether we become a Tibetan Buddhist or not. And also there's um, another series of practices in the book. I don't know if you've tried any of them yet, but they're connected to the, to the elements. Hmm. They're called integration with the elements. And the elements are considered to be the dakinis. And so, for example, if you're doing integration with water, with the element of water, you would go sit next to, let's say you go sit next to a river. And you look at the river. And you listen to the river. And then you you kind of melt into the river or you become one with that element of water. And you, as your mind gets distracted, you bring it back and you go back into that element. And it's so powerful 
to do that with, with a stream, a lake, even in the shower. Um, the, the work with the elements, and there's five different practices like that in the book, is extremely powerful and transformative. And again, then, how, how does that relate to our relationship with the earth and this whole healing of the, the feminine and this wisdom rising? How is that, that valuable, that practice valuable for e- us as individuals in that collective shift? It's not a conceptual experience of, say, appreciating water and, oh, water's so important, and now we don't have enough water, and water's all dirty. And, you know, it's, uh, it's union with that element. And in that union, you go to a different level of consciousness you go into a non-dual experience. And the accessing of non-dual experience then informs your mind and your activities. And so if you, say, started your day by going and sitting next to water for an hour and becoming one with it or even 20 minutes, you're going to have a more integrated relationship with your world with everyone you meet with everything that comes towards you it's less separation there's more openness there's more of a non-dual experience with with your your world and the beings in your world and so it's 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 entering into a very high level or maybe deep levels better than high a deep level of vastness, because when you enter into the element practices, the experience of each element is vast, even if it's not the sky element or the water element, you know, the earth element too. So you have that non-dual experience that's then informing your relative experiences. And so that would naturally make you more attuned to the earth and her situation. And you'd have the wisdom aspect to enact whatever needs to be done. I'm not saying that everyone becomes an activist from this. But I'm saying that everyone's actions will be affected by doing it. And be informed by it. And that will take many different forms. Maybe it's how you relate to your kids. Maybe it's your, maybe you have a corporate job. How do you, how are you relating to your colleagues and, and your work? So your path has, I mean, what struck, what continues to strike me about your story and your, and your work as a teacher is that your path has kind of just pulled you along. It feels like you've been, like that moment, your 15-year-old you finding that Carl Jung book, you know, pulled you in. And it's it's been this very um, fluid thread of unfolding from my point of view. Not sure how it felt to you. But in, in reflecting on that, it that also feels to me like a feminine unfolding. Yeah. In a way, uh, 
in 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 retrospect and understanding what I know about reincarnation, I I know that I had specific past lives in Tibet, and that's why when I saw that mandala, I I couldn't take my eyes off it. It's like the memory starts to uh, come, kind of like kind of like if you're hearing a song that you once knew and you start to hear it on the radio and you're like, wait, 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 wait. I know that. Well, what is that? What is that? You know? So that was what it was like for me. So there was that sense of, uh, I guess you could say destiny, karmic destiny in my life. It, it, it's just no way around it. I've never really done anything else besides practice Tibetan Buddhism and I'm just still a student, still learning and, and so on. So there, there was sort of that karmic destiny part of it. And somehow I was pulled by that, you know, pulled into one thing after another unfolding. And it's still happening, still happening. Um, and so there is that sense of, I, I, I'm not really planning my life. It's happening, you know. Uh, or you know you know those things that you get at Christmas where you open every day before Christmas you open one of the little yeah the advent paper calendar yeah. right yeah, yeah and it has another thing so it's felt a little bit like that oh oh this is the next thing so in terms of the feminine but I think there is that quality of the feminine getting back you know that's not specific to my life of being able to follow signs as they arise in your life and being able to recognize the signs. And there's, there's, a, there's a word or a teaching in Tibetan called Mahamudra, which means the great gesture or the great symbol. And part of that path is being able to interpret the symbols that arise in your life or the, the signs. So let's say you're, you know, you're driving down the road and a deer crosses the road. You might think, well, the deer just crossed the road. It doesn't matter. Um, but if you're really looking at the symbolic message type of way of seeing, then the deer is a symbol of the Buddha's teachings, you know, taught in deer park, one of the symbols of the Buddha. So it might be the, some indication in that direction. So you, do you see what I mean, where things start to arise in your life in, 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 in synchronicity? Yes. And, and then you, you, you follow those. And if you're in the flow, not the force, then you can follow them and you can see them. If you're forcing, like, this has to happen now and this has to happen this way, you, you cut yourself off from that um, ability to, to, to be guided by your relationship, your interactive relationship with your world. And so I think that could be considered feminine, that way of being, that way of seeing. The masculine is more like make a plan and do it. <laughs> you know, don't be reacting to this and that and you know just make your plan make your outline mm -hmm. with logic and mm -hmm. then do it mm -hmm. but i think the feminine is more ability to 
re react to and be with the flow of what's happening. Yeah. You know, the just the very first exchange with the the woman um in Colorado about the exchange is so um, honestly I froze on that story for some time. I had to really just sit sit with the simplicity of that and mm. um and the wisdom of that and it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> how um, far we are from that experience in relationship to the earth in particular. Mm -hmm. You know, just of course, of course she could see Taramandala hovering over the landscape. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. of course that was, of course she could see, of course it was there. And, um, and there's so much... Uh, esoteric practices out there now and spirituality exploding and I want to just get your feedback on that like esoteric practices versus like a mandala practice there's so many um, ways that women's wisdom has kind of found little nooks and crannies to hang out and I find that some of it is a bit diluted and so what you're offering is something incredibly potent. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when we talk about the sacred feminine, it, it's hard to even know what it is because we know it mostly in relationship to patriarchy. Right. And, and, and it's life within patriarchy. So when you say it's sort of you know, off to the side and diluted, that's because it hasn't had a seat. It hasn't had a place. Mm. It's been repressed. Mm. And so my tradition, which is Vajrayana Buddhism, which is mm. the third phase of Buddhism that was really quite different than early Buddhism, uh, and Tantric Buddhism had a very strong presence of the feminine and a feminine principle at, at, at the root. Uh, we say the the great mother gave birth to all the Buddhas. So that great mother principle is present as emptiness. Um, sort of the pure potential of the universe that has not yet manifested into form. And so uh, the beautiful thing about Vajrayana is you have a pretty direct link to a living transmission that does include the mm -hmm. sacred feminine has it at its roots. Even though that Vajrayana tradition, as it went into Tibet, went into an extremely patriarchal situation with, within Tibet, which is why I'm one of maybe a handful of, of lamas, of female lamas, mm -hmm. even though the word lama means supreme female. Mm -hmm. But there's only five women lamas. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, yeah, I think I think for all of us, including myself and you, I imagine you know we're we're talking about the sacred feminine, but uh, we didn't grow up with that notion, and so in a way, we have to go back and find our own roots. And the blessings of Vajrayana is that it's there in an unbroken lineage. 
Right. And so knowing your story that, you know, um, you've, you had to take a moment to split from your teacher to move into reintegrating that. How can you reflect on that now after writing this book and in this moment? I know we talked about it last time we spoke and it, you know, super powerful uh, moment of your deliberation to step into that fully against the direction of your teacher and then to have his endorsement of the work that you've done and now being here offering this this out to all of us what does how does that feel to you now coming out of the closet <laughs> yeah um, yeah. not really because I've been out of the closet for about 15 years now or more I mean, it's already <laughs> out of the closet of, as as a, as, a, as, as a feminist mm -hmm. feminist Buddhist as a yeah um, and that's why I got in trouble to begin with um, because I was out of the closet but um, I was um, m much less apologetic in this book um in terms of what I said, uh, pretty direct, um, and also uh, confident in terms of what I know and what I've taught now for many years. And so that was a transition, and just for your participants, just to update them a little bit uh, in case they don't know that story, that took place in 1998, between 1998 and around 2002, when my teacher of, of 18 years said to me that what I was teaching was too feminist and feminist fe feminism was dualistic. And that, that was missing the point of the non-dual path. And so that was not... Uh, didn't feel dualistic to me in the sense that I felt, you know, 2,500 years of patriarchy was much more dualistic than bringing wholeness in terms of having both of those sides present in leadership and, and in, uh, in our, in our decisions and so on. So now I am in a place of having having gone into retreat for a year in 2001, 2002 to make the decision about whether I was going to renounce my view and return to the fold or stick with it and see what happened, um, really jumping off a cliff in a way in terms of lineage and everything else. And ultimately, I made the choice to do that um, because of some experiences I had during that retreat, that one-year solitary retreat. And then later, but many years later, like 14 years later, he came to Tara Mandala, my teacher, and, and said, you've done a good job, and has come back several times and, and given empowerments and really been very honoring of what I've done. So... So all that took place now uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, what, what I would call leaving the father's house. Uh, 
Marion Woodman wrote a book called that, and I found that book during that year and read it. And I had had a recurrent dream, like really recurrent, like at least once a week for years, where I was going into some sort of Tibetan teaching or or meeting, you know, with great lamas or, um, uh, you know, basically with, within a Buddhist patriarchal situation which I had been very involved with and there was no seat for me in that, in that gathering. I couldn't find a seat and it was in lots of different situations, you know, uh, different kinds of rooms and tents and halls and so on. But it was always this same theme of there's no seat for me here. And it was such a disturbing dream. I always woke up really disturbed and worried, you know, there's no seat. And in that book, in Marion's book, Leaving the Father's House, there's a Christian woman who's also coming out of sort of being in a very patriarchal situation mm. wow. in Christianity. Mm. And she had the same dream of going into church, not being any seat for her. And so finally, what I understood was, no. There isn't a seat for you here. You need to go somewhere else and make your own seat. <laughs> and, and so once I did that, I stopped having those dreams. Right. And can you, can you reflect on the way that you held your relationship to this, the feminine prior to that moment? And how it's shifted over time. You're saying you're saying this thing, you know, coming out out of the closet or whatever. Come, and I can relate to that. Um, coming out as as a whole, coming out as a feminist, coming out as whole, holy female. Um, how has that? How did it? How did you hold that? And how has it changed over this time that you've been doing this? That was 1998. You said that the well, the whole process of about the feminine and me and Buddhism yeah. started in the early 80s when I started researching for my book Women of Wisdom I I was not a feminist at that time uh, the whole issues of women hadn't been an issue for me somehow I just I just hadn't I, I you know came from a family of empowered women and um, just wasn't until the death of my daughter Kiara was with a twin and died at the age of two and a half months. And that death made me really need women and need the stories of women. And I didn't have any in my tradition. And so that set me off on the journey that became my book, Women of Wisdom. Can when I just I was stop researching, you there? Why, why? Why did, can you say the why of why that death made you need women? Why the loss of your daughter made you need the stories of women? Well, because I was really a serious Buddhist. You know, I'd been a Buddhist nun, and I was married at that time, obviously, and having kids and stuff. But um, I turned toward my tradition in grief hmm. and I looked for, you know how, what's going to help me here hmm. and I couldn't find anything hmm. 
I mean, I found that story of the Buddha when, you know, the woman whose child dies and and the Buddha tells her to go house to house and get a mustard seed from each house where there's no been no death. Hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, <laughs> she couldn't get any mustard seeds. Right. Uh, but but anyway, my point is that hmm. I didn't find any guidance through the stories that were offered to me within my tradition. Uh, it was all male stories. Yeah, there were no stories about women, um, or you know, they had really minor roles, like the Buddha's mother who died, and you know, his wife who he left. <laughs> right, and then all the teachings about renunciation and women as kind of a problem. Right, so you had identified, um, you had worked, you had really studied and committed yourself, and a huge part of your identity was, and your life was involved in this practice, and then this whole other part of your life unfolded, and there was not a reflection in this back, in this yeah. other area. Yeah, Okay. That's a good word to use, there wasn't a reflection. Yeah. And so that... So, so I needed stories of women. I was like, well, what, you know, how, what do I do at this juncture in my life? And in any other juncture, I don't have any models to follow. And so that, that's how it began. And then once I got into writing the introduction of Women of Wisdom, I came upon the, the women's spirituality movement that was beginning mostly in the United States and started reading some of those writers um, like Carol Christ, for example, and and then it was that was another kind of awakening. Like they were saying, well, you know, what would the spiritual path be like if it was created for women by women? And plus, they were tracking history back to the Neolithic time when there was matrifocal uh, religion and societies that were turned out they were peaceful. They didn't focus on war, and they were partnership societies. And so I, I sort of became a feminist by mistake, you know, <laughs> like not mistake, but I didn't have the intention. I just needed the stories of women. But then I started reading. And then once that happens, I think it's like any kind of awakening. It, it's really hard to go back and, mm. and not see it, you know. And so then I started to really feel not only were, was it important to have the stories of women, but this whole feminine presence, the feminine principle itself, um, the deities, the dakinis, and so on, that, that we really needed in our spiritual path a genuine and empowered feminine that wasn't simply the, the partner, you know, the Shakti to the Shiva or the, you know, whatever, um, the, the aspect, the girlfriend of the guy who was the main point, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, so so that's how it began. And then it and then it, I kind of couldn't stop it. Um, and it and it became more and more in a way my identity. I mean, that people think of me that way, even though it's not it's hard to explain the feeling, but it's sort of like I didn't set out with that intention sure. or decide it. I just became clear to me that this was so it was kind of like it's a big um, missing piece. It's the elephant in the room that no one's talking about. I mean, not no one. There are lots of people talking about it, especially now. But, you know, it, there weren't in Buddhism. Right. And so your path as a, as a seeker, as a spiritual student, 
led you to following this truth through to the end, right? To finding the truth. Yeah. So I met this, I met the Tibetans in 1967, so less than 10 years after the big exodus. And as a Western person, I was able to receive teachings from these amazing high Tibetan lamas who who came out, all the great lamas came out. And because I was there so early, uh, I was able to benefit from that. And then my life has really been being a bridge. How can I how can I make this amazing treasure that I discovered and, and I was able to partake in accessible and useful to to the West. And so that's really, that's been my life, that work of having been born in a Western body as a woman and meeting this tradition very young and, and deeply practicing and studying it all this time. But how I, I, my instinct is always, okay, this is great for me. And, you know, the small number of people that want to really practice Tibetan Buddhism, but how can I take some of this, pieces of it, and bring it to the greater dialogue, to the to to the larger society, and make it helpful? Because His, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said it's not important to be Buddhist; it's important to be helpful. <laughs> you know, and you know he's not in, he's not interested in, in converting people to Buddhism, but but. To, to take the principles in Buddhism and, and help to add a dialogue uh, and teachings of compassion, not that nobody else teaches compassion, but um, the particular way that it was developed in Tibet and so on, to the wider human dilemma, to bring it there and, and bring it as uh, tools that can help everybody. That's my goal. And um, so this book, Women, Wisdom Rising, um, which is called Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine, that's the subtitle. And it has um, 50 different uh, grayscale images and 16 color plates. Um, And so um, this book, like Feeding Your Demons and Women of Wisdom is really my attempt to offer the wisdom and beauty of the Tibetan teachings in a way that's practical uh, to to help change people's lives and make them better. Make the world better. What a great service. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, what a great service. Yeah. And and um it's something that is it struck me the last time we spoke too about the generosity of your practice i feel so fortunate to be able to have this time with you uh even over the internet and to connect with you as you're passing on these teachings and and through your story um, and through the, the moments in time that you have lived to come to this moment to offer us this, uh, you know, feminine center in, in the mountains of Colorado and all of these practices 
rooted in so much of your deep and thorough study and devotion to Tibetan Buddhism. So one thing I just want to say as we wrap up, I'd love to just get your feedback on how to deal with the pushback that's, that seems to be in the flow of the cultural conversation around Me Too, around the new feminine, coming from both men and women, how, how, do you, how do you hold that or how would you suggest that we? Yeah, well, it's always like that, you know, whatever change. Look at racism, the pushback that there was when we tried to integrate the country, still is. Um, and I think nonviolence, nonviolent communication is important. Um, a gent- gentleness listening, presenting other points of view. And this, um, within yourself, to be doing the practice and finding that center and strength within yourself so that if you're encountering pushback or aggression, uh, you can hold, hold the line and hold your presence with humor and also joy and gentleness, but firmness. So educating yourself is really important so you know the facts about um, what's happening with the earth, what's happening with women, and so on. And just keep going. You know, there will be setbacks. There will be people that criticize you. But we need to do this. We have to do it. It's time. And like that movement, time is up. Time is up. And I'm very encouraged really by what's happening now uh, and the impact of Me Too. That really, I mean, things have happened, you know. We've seen some major male icons fall. And um, men in power so it's being effective, and I, I want to keep it. I want to. I want to have um, fierceness, but with wisdom and compassion. So by fierceness, I mean that protective energy and that not stepping back or standing down, but but with compassion and non-aggression. That's that's my recommendation, and. And, and patience and listening, and um, it can be frustrating, and it can be um, kind of amazing. Like, I, I was in Europe this year, and I was in a, in a community, and um, the men keep kept calling women who are in their 50s girls, or even 30s. And, you know, you know I was with this Chinese girl. I was like, how, well, how old was she? And she was 45. Well, that's not a girl. You know, you're not a girl after you're about 15. And um, girls don't vote. And so on. And they were like, oh, you know, what's the problem? Don't be so uptight. (laughs) And so I found an article in the Internet that was entitled, um, Why Calling Women Girls Matters. 
and and then I sent it to these men that I'd had this discussion with, and so maybe they will think twice when they call women girls. Now. Perfect. Wonderful. <laughs> Those are all very useful uh, directions for how how we can continue to move forward and engaging the fierceness and engaging the mandala practice and the dakinis and our own wisdom practices, our own spending time in our own wisdom supported by these traditions and these other practices um, mm-hmm. will provide that endurance. Yeah. That's a good word. <laughs> We're going to need it, I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm also encouraged by how fast things are changing. Yes. Um, and it's like it's another wave. You know, I was there in the first wave. This is another wave. So, and it's where a do you think the wave is is leading? I mean, did you have two, two questions? Did you have a, a sense of where the first wave was leading when you were on it, and where do you think this one is leading? Well. The first wave was the first feminist movement, and that led to a lot of political change and inclusion of women and, and of course, the vote first. And then um, we gradually seeing it. You know, we're gradually seeing more women in leadership. Maybe we'll get a female president, uh, but um, more equal pay and so on. So there was a, that first wave had that political um, change, focus, but there was also at that time a movement in women's spirituality and coming out of a patriarchy, like the book Beyond God the Father. There were so many books that came out at that time. So now what I see is it's, it's the daughters, mainly of those women, um, or even granddaughters, who have been carrying this message and for some reason I really don't know why I mean maybe it's the um, reaction to the Trump presidency that's just infuriated us to the point of action Uh, but it's interesting because last summer before Me Too happened there was a major um, I guess you could say scandal in um, Tibetan Buddhism of a Lama who lives mainly in France, Tibetan Lama, who has been sexually abusing women for years. And I've known about it for years and I've tried to help, you know, bring it out and so on. For some reason, last summer, it broke, you know, it broke and he's out now. And so I don't know why. I really don't know if it's astrological or it's just somehow it's like the wave went out and now the waves come back in. But this is our moment and we need to grab it and take it as far as we can because it'll probably go back again. And so, but each time we come a little further forward. And hopefully we'll have a tsunami. (laughs) It'll just like change it all and it won't go back. Well, there is this added part, part of what you're bringing to it and, and 
and and also what's bubbling around there is an added presence of the of the feminine in spiritual practice and you make mm-hmm. that point in in your book basically that we need this it's a spiritual healing it's healing the earth yeah. healing the feminine for both the men yeah. and women for all of us to become whole it is a spiritual healing and so having your leadership and the leadership of other women mm-hmm. is is part of this moment yeah yeah let's see let's see where we can go and I'm really excited to hear people's thoughts on the book uh, when they read it. Is, is it helpful? What's your experience with the Dakini Mandala and and this work? Uh, we we have my Lama Sultramaliani Facebook page, um, and we're um, we're publishing a lot of things on that and on Instagram and so on, and also can hear from you your experiences and I will be on this book tour this summer for about three months 45 different events wow oh, uh, <laughs> a lot uh, some, of, some of that's in, in that's Europe a rock too. star style tour rock and roll style tour there well hopefully I'll be able to carry it all with a feeling of ease but anyway I'm, I have I'm a feeling you'll to... be carried <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Bikinis mm-hmm. will carry. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really excited to see what effect this book has in the world and to hear back from your listeners uh, what their experience is and maybe to meet them along the along the way and please tell me if you heard if you heard about this on the Shakti Hour uh, when when we meet and thank you so much for your interest and. And, and for the interview. Thank you, Lama. It's such a pleasure. And please, everybody, do go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com where you will find a link to purchase Lama's books, including this most recent one, Wisdom Rising, and find ways to connect with her on this book tour and at Tara Mandala in Colorado. And thank you so, so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. Thank you. Lots of love to you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
dot com slash be here now.